You guys need to fire your tech guy. <laughs> please, please fire your tech guy. I'm just kidding. Hey, thank you, Angie. Um, you know, it's not, we, we like to think that it doesn't happen here. Uh, you like to think that that's not something that we have to deal with, and it is. And it can seem overwhelming. You hear about women in trauma, and you can think, I don't have skills to do that, and many of us don't. But the, the great thing about the body of Christ is that when you pray, or when you give, or when you do something else, you are participating in the ministry with people uh, that have those skills. And so you're enabling them to minister. And so thank you for ministering to, to image bearers that have experienced sin and the brokenness of this world in ways that honestly most of us can't imagine and don't want to imagine. So uh, Angie and Susan are going to be in the addition after service. They have a table out there. And so they'll be available. I would encourage you to stop by and see how you can get involved. So let me pray real quick, and then we're going to get going. Father, we just do thank you for the, uh, the ministry of Project to Restore, dear God. I ask for abundant, abundant blessing, dear God. Out of your abundance, would you just resource them with all that they need uh, in people and in uh, monetary blessings, dear God. I pray for the people that they minister to, dear Lord, that... Um, they will know new life in Christ and that they will walk in that newness of life. And, uh, Father, that they would just uh, be blessed and uh, just pray for all the volunteers and uh, that you just would uh, work and give them everything that they need. Dear God, be with our time today and let it be honoring to you. Amen. Amen. Okay, in preparing for this series... Okay. Uh, so in preparing for these series, this series, I read a lot of blog posts, I read a lot of articles, and I read a couple of books, uh, short books, not, not long books. And one of the most provocative books that I read, it was actually published in 2017, and it was titled The Benedict Project. And it was written by Rod Dreher. Rod Dreher's a writer for the American Conservative, which I think is an online magazine. I don't think it's actually published, but... Oh, I'm sorry. No good. Um, and the book was titled The Benedict Option. The subtitle is A Strategy for Christians in a Post-Christian Nation. And when it came out, it caused, caused quite a bit of controversy um, because of what he was proposing. Seemed like for a couple of months after its publication, there was always a critique or there was a book review. Even some people had come out with competing uh, strategies. So it caused no amount of controversy in evangelical circles. Many of you might have read it. Some of you may have read it. Any, anybody in here actually read it? Am I the only one? Okay. Well, I could just say whatever I want about it then, right? <laughs> Uh, but if you haven't, Dreher's, his basic premise is that the forces of secular, secularism excuse me, have completely taken over the culture and that Christianity has been completely routed, that, just, that there's nothing left but secularism in the culture. And that in order for Christians to survive this new environment, what's needed, and this is his take on it. What's needed is to create like-minded communities 
of people. And these communities are loosely modeled after, modeled, excuse me, modeled after Benedictine monasteries, hence the name, the Benedict Option. And these communities, he likens them to an ark. And so in this ark, you have these, you have these intentional communities, like-minded people, and within these communities, Christian culture and the faith is protected, it's nurtured, and it's passed on to the next generation. And then out of these communities, and this is the kind of the part of the book where he was a little fuzzy in, is that when the, when the cultural destruction is complete, that these, cult, these communities would serve as places from which Christianity and Christian culture could be reintroduced and reborn. So, um, you know, when you look at the changes that have occurred in five years, so this was written in 2017, when you look at changes that have occurred in the last five years, it's a little difficult to argue with his central premise, is that the culture has reached a point of irredeemability. Um, I don't, his, his view of things was a little dystopian for me. I wasn't, uh, it was a little pessimistic. And I'm a pessimistic person, so if I say that, it was really pessimistic. But, but it's hard to argue with the fact that, that things have changed, and Christians need to chart a new path. The old ways are not working, the old things are not working, and so what do we do going forward? I didn't agree with everything that he wrote. He comes, he was a Roman Catholic, and now he's part of the Eastern Orthodox Church. And so he talked a lot about liturgical worship. He talked a lot about uh, asceticism. And so honestly, that offended my Protestant sensibilities, and I, I didn't quite like that part of it. But I did read the book. It was interesting. If you are at all interested in reading it, I'd give it a qualified recommendation. And it did make me think, and some of it is incorporated into to this series. So uh, this is a third of a four-week series. This is the third message titled Postcards from Babylon. And we're exploring the idea of what does it mean to be a church in exile. And so my thesis has been not as dystopian and pessimistic as Dreher's, but it's been a lot like his. That the culture used to tolerate us and now it doesn't. It's openly hostile, at least to the brand of conservative evangelicalism that most of us practice, right? So if you don't, if you're at the Unitarian Church, the, the world loves you, the culture loves you. If you're here, not so much. And so the first week we talked about exile. What does it mean that the church is in exile? Is that even a good metaphor? We talked about some things that you could do um, to come to grips with that fact, right? Because it's disorienting. And it, our reaction to it is all over the map. I told you guys I'm, I'm like this, right? And so what are some things we can do? I talked about lament, and I talked about confession. Last week, we talked about political engagement. What are the, what are the limits of government action? I told you it is entirely appropriate and good for us to vote and participate in the political process for the common good, but that is not at all where our hope lies because it doesn't change hearts and it doesn't change minds. It's something that we should do but it's not something we should put our hope on. And then we talked about what our duties and responsibilities to government were, are. And this morning, I want to talk about some things that we can do to thrive 
as a community of cultural exiles. And when I say thrive, I really do, I really do mean thrive. So, you know, this is not a fun subject, I get it. It's not fun to hear about, it's not fun to think about, it's honestly not fun to teach about. But it's, it's necessary, I think. But I hope that if you haven't gotten anything else, if you haven't gotten anything else, that you have gotten, that I really do believe that we can move forward in hope and in joy, and that we can thrive even in the midst of a hostile culture, a culture that hates us. The first century church thrived under Nero. We've mentioned that several times. And, and the reason that we can have hope and joy is because, like Jeremiah, we know that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. So I hope if you've gotten nothing else that I have been able to communicate that to you, that I honestly do think the church has good days ahead of her and that we can thrive, we can have hope, we can have joy, even in the midst of the mess that the culture is in. So in the first message, if you remember back, I talked to you about the need to anticipate trials. And if you remember, I said, everybody loves Jeremiah 29, 11, and a verse you never see on a coffee mug or a t-shirt. I actually might put that on a coffee mug or a t-shirt, but uh, it's 1 Timothy 3, which says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, worse, deceiving and being deceived. But at that time, I didn't really talk about, well, how do, we, how do we prepare for trials? How do we endure trials? And so I want to try to answer that question now. So in Matthew 7, it's at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus tells his followers this, the people listening to him. He says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. Now, first and foremost, these are verses about salvation. Right. So if your faith and if your hope for salvation is not built on anything but Christ, you're you don't even get to the starting gate. So anything else that I say is not going to apply. So your faith has to be built on Christ. But these verses can also apply to times of persecution. They can also apply to times of difficulty and distress. Because in those times, if your faith isn't built on isn't built on the solid rock of Christ. If it's in, if it's in government power, or if, it, or if it's in cultural influence, if it's on anything, those things ultimately have no substance. They're not going to last. They're not going to support you. And when the times of trouble and distress, when the floods come, you're not going to be able to stand. But a faith built on the solid foundation of Jesus. You're, you're standing on the rock, and you just watch the storm go on by. doesn't matter how, how bad the storm is, how intense the storm is. You're standing on the rock, and it just rolls by. So not only 
first, our faith needs to be in Christ, but we also need to have, if we're gonna thrive, which is my premise for today, is we need a deep affection for Christ. And hear me, I'm not saying we're adding something to salvation. I'm not at all saying that. We are, there is no, under name, no other name given among men by which we must be saved. And you can't add anything to that. But we're talking about thriving under difficult conditions. And so, I'm saying we need a deep affection for Christ. Let me, let me try to illustrate this from Paul's life. So in Philippians 3, excuse me. Paul is comparing himself to Judaizers who put their faith in the Mosaic Law. And, and this is what he says. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of, this, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul had a very impressive resume. He, he lists it earlier in that chapter. So Paul was a Pharisee. Paul studied under Gamaliel, who was one of the elite rabbis of the day. So I'm speculating here, but it's not outside the realm of possibility that Paul might have been in line to be high priest one day. He for sure would have been a member of the Sanhedrin. So he, he had, imagine that he had gone to like the Harvard of rabbinical schools, right? He was the elite, going to be an elite member of that, of that body. And he says all of that, that life of power, that life of prestige, that life of influence, it was rubbish. And, and that's an interesting word, rubbish, right? It, it can be translated as dung. It can be translated as rotten, putrid garbage, Paul says, all of that, all the power, everything I could have had, it's nothing compared to the surpassing knowledge of knowing Christ. And then you go into Paul's sufferings. Now, Paul suffered. Uh, one of the things I love about Paul is that when Ananias went to him, if you remember the story, God told Ananias, I'm going to tell Paul how much I'm gonna, he's going to suffer for me. Paul went into the deal knowing how much he was going to suffer. And he suffered way more than you and guys and I will ever. Okay? If you don't believe me, you can read 2 Corinthians 11, 26 and 27, where Paul talks about being in the sea for a night and a day. He talks about receiving the 40 lashes minus one from the Jews. I think it was five times. He talks about being stoned and left for dead. He talks about being in danger. All these things, that, just this list where I would have said, I'm out. After the first night in the sea, I'm out. Um, I, can't, I can't do this. Paul wrote Philippians from prison, awaiting possible martyrdom. And so with all that, Paul says in Romans 8, that he says, and this is my paraphrase, my paraphrase, he says, the suffering of this present age, this present time, is not worth comparing to the glory that awaits. <laughs> that, that Paul knew that one day, one day, this is going to be over, 
I'm going to see Christ, and all the stuff I've suffered is, is it's not even going to compare. So the question for us is, do we have that kind of affection for Christ? And that's not a gotcha question. That's not a judgmental question. That's not to make you feel bad about yourself. Because I ask myself that question, and I don't always like the answer. And I'm not talking about perfection. I'm not talking about all the time. It's an honest question, and it's meant to, to make us reflect on ourselves. The good news is if you say no, if you say no, that you guys can pick up, we all, can all pick up our Bibles, and we can, we can look in the Gospels, and we can see a portrait of Christ. We can read passages like Ephesians 5, 25 and 26, which says that Christ loved us and gave himself up for the church. Verses like Hebrews 12, which says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising his shame. What was that joy? What was that joy? It was, it was us. It was you. It was me. It was the church. You know, we can pray scripture for ourselves and for others. Scripture like Ephesians 3, um, 14 through 16. And this is what it says. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Those are beautiful. If, if I told you, hey, I just prayed that for you, how would that make you feel? If you told me you'd prayed that for me, that would be awesome, right? Because when things get tough, what do we need? We need to know the love of Christ. When we're facing difficulty, what do we need? We need the fullness of Christ in us. Okay, these are beautiful, beautiful words. And, and if they're a reality in our lives, they'll serve as a bulwark against doubt and fear. They'll stoke our affections for Christ. And we'll be able to... We'll be able to get through tough times. We'll be able to get through persecution. So we need to make sure our faith is in Christ. Stoke our affections for Jesus. And then we need to put effort into our sanctification and during times of relative peace. We say the culture is a mess, and I joke about it, and it is a mess. But we are in times of relative peace. We don't have it as bad as people in Nigeria or in other places in the world. Right? So we do have times of peace. Uh, when I was stationed at McConnell, which is down in Wichita, if you didn't know that, for the second time, the squadron that I was assigned to was a civil engineering squadron. And there was a section in there. And their job was really to make everybody's life miserable. But it was the readiness section. And so what they would do is they would come up with exercises, training exercises, to exercise what was our wartime mission. 
So those are the guys that would make you wear a gas mask for hours and hours and hours in the heat. And yeah, just everybody loved those guys a lot. <laughs> Not at all. But their motto was para antebellum, which I think is really bad Latin for prepare before war. And so the idea is that in times of peace, you prepare for war. You simulate uh, wartime conditions so that when war does come, you've practiced. When, when wartime comes, when the, when the actual... Uh, we got to the point where I could put on my gas mask blindfolded and in the dark, right? Because we did it so many times. Thankfully, I've never had to do it for real in a real situation. I could probably still do it now. I probably still have that muscle memory. But the idea is that when, when times of relative peace, you're practicing the things that you need to so that when bad times come, you don't have to think about it. And, and a, similar, a similar concept applies to our sanctification. So the Apostle Peter, he's writing to the elect exiles in his second epistle, and he tells them this. He says, divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, with, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Now, as I've said, I'm not a prophet. I don't know if or when the culture will get to the point where we're experiencing the kind of persecution that they experience in most of the global church. But the time to prepare for that time is now. Listen, guys, if we are, Mike and, and Kent, and we all say read your Bibles, if we're not in the habit of doing that now, when honestly all we're facing is social alienation, the chances of us doing that when we're actively being persecuted or beaten are slim. If we're not memorizing scripture, if we're not hiding God's word in our heart now, when we have our phones and we have apps and we have all these things and it's peacetime and we have the time to do it, the chances are slim that we're going to do it when we really need it, right? And, and Peter says, if you practice these things, you will never fall. That's a promise. That's a guarantee. If we practice these things, the things that he's talking about, if we practice them, we will never fall. So when the, when the times of persecution and distress come, whenever those times are, we will be able to persevere, persevere to the end. And that's our goal, is to persevere to the end. So I mentioned that the basic premise of Dreher's book is, is about communities and how we should be intentional 
For him, it's the Benedict Option Communities. Um, and so it made me think that are there ways for us to strengthen the community that we have here? Are, are there ways for us to be more intentional about strengthening our community? You know, there's, uh, outside of marriage, probably the church family is the most sanctifying relationship that many of us have, right? Because we rub each other the wrong way, uh, we do things that we don't like, we, we have to put up with each other. And there, listen, there is something sanctifying and refining about plugging into a body and being with these people for the long haul. That no matter what, you're committed to me, I'm committed to you, and either a move out of state or death is the only way out of here. Right? We, the elders were at a meeting the other day and we talked about COVID and we talked about how how hard of a time that was. And we didn't always agree on what we were going to do. Surprise, surprise. But we came out of that stronger because there's something about, there's something about being with people in triumph, in good times and in bad times that is sanctifying. There's something about that that builds bonds. So, but there, are there other ways? So we imitate God's steadfast love for each other when we make commitments and we stick to it. Uh, Acts 2 records how the church functioned shortly after Pentecost. In verses 44 to 47, this is what Luke writes. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Now, you have to be careful with Acts, that you don't pull theology out of Acts because it's narrative, right? And so it's depiction of the early church is, is descriptive, which means it describes how that culture functioned in that time and place. It's not necessarily prescriptive, which means it applies to the church across all times and across all cultures. So don't hear me saying that we all need to sell our house and we all need to go buy some land together and we all need to live in this lion and lamb commune. That is not what I'm saying. Okay. I don't think that's feasible for lots of reasons. Um, and honestly, I don't think that's necessarily what the church is called to. But I do think it's worth asking the question is, are there things we could do? Are there things we could do as a group and as a body to strengthen the ties we have together? One of the best ways is for you to be involved in a small group. Get involved in a small group where you know people, where those people know you, where you can be nurtured, where you can be cared for. But, and this is, this is kind of just me brainstorming with you guys, so I, I don't have answers. But as a larger group, are there things that we can do? And I think we do a lot of things well, but, um, you know, Angie mentioned a garden, and hopefully theirs looks better than, than ours, uh, which I take full responsibility for. Okay, God bless Jennifer Beisel. She has done yeoman's work out there, and I've been, like, no help at all because for various reasons. But, you know, but what if we actually did something with that that plot of land. What if, what if we did? And then I'm not sure what we would do with it. Well, what if we grew some food 
And we could either have it at the blessing box or we could go down to the farmer's market or we could, we could can some of it and it could be here in case of emergencies. I don't know, I'm just, I'm just spitballing. The idea is, are there things that we could do? Are there projects that we could undertake together which build those bonds, right? And it doesn't have to be big things. Any kind of little connection with each other helps. Um, we should have fun together as a family, as a church family, right? We had a great 4th of July picnic, thanks to, to Mike and his volunteers. Willie Brooks organized a camp out. I'm hoping to, to spend some of the elders' money and do some fun things this, um, this fall. So, you guys don't know about that yet, but I'm, I'm preparing the ground that I want to I spend some money. <laughs> Kent's like, no, you're not spending money. Yeah. Uh, but so I get it. This is just me brainstorming, right? But are, are there ways that we can that we can develop those connections? Are there ways that we can can tie ourselves more closely together? You can email me email me with suggestions. You can email me and tell you tell me no. I think we're we're close enough, or I don't want anything to do with it. That's fine too. Okay, so. What I've been talking about so far is, is individually how we can thrive and as a group how we can thrive, but it's been mainly inwardly focused. Another way that we can thrive is we can thrive by doing good, by doing good works. Doing good works as a group and serving the community around us. You know, Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, we're all good evangelicals, so we, we affirm that we're not saved by works. Works have no salvific uh, value, um, but they're a tangible expression of the life of Christ in us. And they're meant to point people to God. As we become more marginalized in the culture, as we get pushed out, it's my personal belief that the good works that we do are going to shine brighter and that they're going to point more to Christ. Kind of like as, the, as it gets darker, the light shines brighter. And it doesn't have to be a big light. It doesn't have to be something huge that we do. You know, it's one thing to do good when things are good, when people like us, or at least tolerate us, um, it's an entirely different thing to do good to people that hate us or that persecute us or want our harm. And so I think doing good in the midst of persecution, doing good to those inside and outside the church is going to be a powerful witness or can be a powerful witness. So I want to wind down with with this um, when the Israelites went into exile the prophet Jeremiah wrote to them on behalf of God uh, both to give them some instructions about what to do in exile to kind of tell them why they were in exile but he also wanted to give them hope that he hadn't forgotten them and that they did have a future and they did have a hope and this is what he says in Jeremiah 29 these are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, 
the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters, multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So basically, basically Jeremiah tells the exiles, live a normal life. Do normal things. Plant gardens. Eat produce. Have kids. Marry those kids off so that they can have kids. And, and the thought behind those commands is that when we live normal quiet lives, we're, we're demonstrating our faith and our assurance in God's provision for the future and the present. Guys, we live in such a fractured, anxious, furious world. It seems like outrage is the fuel that society runs on. And so what kind of witness would it be to the world for us just to, to go about life normally, just doing normal things? planting gardens, eating produce, having children, not responding to the latest cultural outrage, not running around with their hair on fire, just calmly going about life, loving each other well, engaging appropriately in political things, not stressed out about what the culture is doing. What would it, what would it say to the culture if we lived that way? Now, there's also, possible, there's also the possibility that it provokes a, a different reaction because there are people who are so hardened to the gospel and so hardened against Christ that they'll react differently. And our living that way says something to them as well. This is what Paul says in Philippians 1. He says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So when we, when we live courageous lives, uh, we're saying something to one part of the culture, but we're saying something to our opponents and God's opponents. And that is that I'm not afraid. That I'm not worried about the worst that you can do. Because my hope is not in the culture. My hope is not in the government. But my hope is in Christ. And, and I am waiting. I am anticipating his return at some point. And it's a sign to them of their destruction. So I want to end the same way that I have the past couple weeks. Guys, one day, one day the trumpet's going to sound. Don't know when that day is going to be, but one day it's going to sound. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Lucky them, right? 
The dead in Christ get to rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And all this is going to be, it's going to be nothing. Because we're going to be like Paul. We're going to see that glory. Right? Whatever persecution we've suffered, whatever cultural alienation, it's all going to be in the rearview mirror. Unbroken fellowship, sinless eternity, just living the way we were always meant to live. May God hasten that day. So if you would stand, the band's going to come up. If you'd read Ephesians 3 with me. We're good? Okay. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with